Welcome to this BGSM podcast. My name is William Winterby and I'm one of the Sport and Exercise Medicine Registrars in London. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Phil Hopley and Georgia Hopley to discuss mental health in professional golfers, as well as consider the impact of the current coronavirus pandemic uh, on, on mental health. Dr. Phil Hopley is a consultant sports psychiatrist. He's managing director at Cognacity and leads their mental health team, providing support to elite athletes from 15 different individual and team sports. He's also developed and led the mental health service for the 2012 London Olympics. He's also got a lot of experience himself as an elite athlete, playing rugby for Wasps, England students and the Barbarians. Georgia Hopley is a medical student at the University of Edinburgh and is currently completing her intercalated BSc in sport and exercise medicine. She's undertaking some really interesting research looking at the prevalence of mental health disorders among professional golfers. So I'd like to say thank you very much for coming in uh, and joining me on this virtual podcast. Well, thanks for having us, Will. Good to be here. So I wanted to start by considering the mental health impact of the current coronavirus pandemic. Currently, most sporting events have been cancelled or at least delayed, including the Tokyo Olympics, the Euros, Wimbledon, and recently the British Open at Royal St George's. This must be a really difficult time for many athletes and indeed anyone involved in these events. What do you see as the key challenges the current pandemic raises for our athletes and what impact do you think it might have on their mental health and well-being? I think it's a really interesting approach to think about this in general terms and then elite athletes as well because there's a lot of common ground that we're seeing in, in both populations. First things first, everybody has become quite anxious about what's happening around us from a health perspective. And rightly so, because we've seen that this is a very severe virus. It's got very high mortality rates. The early thinking that it would just affect those who are, you know, seriously ill or elderly seems to have actually not been borne out. There have been some cases of younger people and even children who've been affected by the virus. So it's normal for everybody to feel anxious about what's going on. The important thing is to keep that into some sort of perspective. Then specifically in sport, I guess like a lot of people who are in the workplace, um, people are effective being furloughed. Their, their main reason for working, for performing, for training has been taken away from them. All of these big high-profile events have been taken out of the calendar. And of course, that's thrown a lot of uncertainty into the equation. And you've got people who might have been on an Olympic cycle, a four-year cycle of preparing, training, going through rehab at times because they're struggling with injuries, etc aiming for this pinnacle of achievement uh, later in the year, and it's just, been, it's just been removed. So it's a very, very difficult time for people to have to adjust to a completely unforeseen set of circumstances. In terms of, in terms of what people can do, well, the most important advice is to really keep things in perspective. So in terms of general anxiety, people could spend a lot of time being directed towards all the news feeds that are coming through, much of which is not accurate and therefore not helpful. And so one of the things that we're pushing very strongly is for people to be focused and just look at the news once a day to look at what's going on. And then away from that, think very carefully about how you can structure your day. It's easy to slip into a, an unstructured, drifting environment, but we've all got things that we need to do in terms of our well-being, our fitness programs, in terms of looking after our mental well-being. And it's really important that we have a structured approach to that rather than just taking things as they come, even down to very simple things like in the morning, get up at a fixed time, get dressed. A lot of people, when they don't have those demands for work, can find themselves just drifting through the morning, still in their pajamas, 
not really with much focus. And I'm afraid that's a recipe for disaster. Thinking a bit more about golf specific, the recent IOC consensus statement on mental health has gone some way to kind of putting a focus on mental health in elite sport. And I know it's pinpointed some specific challenges uh, in elite athletes. What do you see as the specific mental health challenges for, for golfers? Well, golf is an individual sport. So you've got to look at that differently to how we see people being affected in team sports. Golf, not in my experience, that dissimilar from tennis. So you've got all the pressure hoisted on an individual. Performance comes down to how they manage under pressure time after time after time. So the intensity of that demand is really significant. And if you think about how golfers operate, you've got to retain your tour card if you're playing at the top level. So it all comes down to results and points and prize money. And if you're coming towards the end of the season and you're down in that kind of drop zone and you're looking for results and you haven't got the mental resilience to be able to keep your focus on your performance and you start to worry and ruminate and catastrophize about what's coming down the track, then performance can get obliterated very quickly. So that's the number one demand in golf. The other thing, and it's similar to other individual sports, is the travel. You know, these individuals are traveling throughout the year or throughout most of the year. And that has huge implications in terms of time zone changes, impact on sleep. And we know sleep is a massively important cornerstone for mental health. If people aren't getting good quality, regular sleep, performance drops away straight away. And if that then continues to be problematic, we can see that slipping into common mental disorder symptoms like anxiety and depression that we'll come on to talk about shortly. But for me, it's that individual pressure and the kind of demands of the scheduling that are unique features, almost unique features for golf. And, and what would you say the common mental health disorders are that we're, we're seeing in golfers? Well, exactly the same as we'd see in the general population. So the commonest thing we see are depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, and adjustment disorders. And number one in that list is depressive disorders. Um, should this be a surprise? Not really. I mean, sportsmen and women, people working in elite performance domains are no different to people working in pressured work environments or having the demands of raising a family. All of these scenarios are an interaction between our kind of mental capabilities, our ability to cope with stress and the demands that are put upon us. If we don't get that balance right, we quite commonly see people slip into an adjustment disorder phase where they feel burnt out, fatigued, their focus starts to go. And unchecked, that then can develop on into an anxiety disorder or to a depressive disorder. Those are the common things. Georgia, I know you've done some specific research uh, looking at prevalence of different mental health conditions on the Challenge Tour. Could you tell us a little bit about the research you've done? Yes, of course. So we wanted to have a look at the mental health of a group of professional golfers. So as you say, we sent an online survey around to everyone who's competing on the Challenge Tour. And this survey was basically just to assess how prevalent symptoms of common mental disorders are. So we looked at things like depression and anxiety. And um, we found that overall the sort of prevalence rates are sort of consistent with the other studies that have already been conducted. Um, but for a couple of these symptoms, particularly distress and alcohol misuse, they're actually much higher than those reported in any other studies. So distress was up at, I think, 52%, which shows that over half of the players were struggling with symptoms suggestive of distress disorders, which is very interesting. It, it is, yeah. Um, and did you have any did you have any challenges while um, undertaking the research? 
Yes. Yeah, so with any sort of survey based studies, obviously, there's an issue of getting lots of people to fill out the survey. So we had about 22% response rate, which is consistent with other sort of studies. Um, and the other issue was that obviously, because it's a one sort of one off survey, it only really gives a snapshot of the mental health sort of status at that time. So ideally, we would look to do the survey at other points throughout the year to see whether it changes. Um, but no, it was a good research project. Sounds excellent, yeah. And and Phil, going back to um, the sort of work you've done with the European tour, could you tell us a bit about how you've helped develop the mental health services for them uh, and what you feel is important when considering setting up a mental health service in a, in a sporting environment? Yeah, of course, Well, I mean, I think like a lot of sports, a lot, a lot of organisations, the approach historically has been reactive. So if there's been a problem, then people look for a solution. That's completely understandable. But what I'm really impressed with about the European tour um, under the direction of Dr. Andrew Murray is that they want now to kind of be evidence-based in the way that they approach this. That's part of the reason why Georgia um, was brought on to do this study looking at the prevalence of mental health symptoms in that population so that you can then tailor your interventions based on what the need of that population is. That's the best way of doing things. So we started out a few years ago by introducing a simple helpline service. So it's a 24-7 service that we offer now to, I think, 15 sports across the UK, where an individual athlete, whatever time of day or night, if they're struggling, they've got a confidential line that they can call up, and it's answered by trained telephone call handlers who then link in to the on-call consultant at Cognacity, and we're a group of individuals who are trained in general adult psychiatry who've got a particular interest in sports. Many of us have played or competed at a high level. Um, and so we would then screen the caller, look at what their needs are. Obviously, in emergency cases, we would give appropriate advice for them to seek help immediately. Fortunately, that doesn't happen very often, but it does from time to time. Um, and then for those who have a pressing need, but it's not an emergency situation, we would then link them up with an appropriate mental health clinician from our national network over the course of the coming days. And one of the challenges is working out with people scheduling how to do that. At the moment, that's not so difficult because most athletes don't have that regular demand around them. And we're working remotely using Zoom as we are today or Skype or FaceTime or even telephone just to be able to provide that support as quickly as possible. So that's the reactive side of things. In terms of the proactive side of things, um, only two weeks ago, uh, myself and a colleague, Dr. Hugh Goodwin, who's a sports psychologist, who does a lot of work with the Royal Ballet, um, we ran some training in mental health awareness and resilience for staff on the tour and for the medical and allied medical professionals who work supporting the players and the caddies and the rest of the members of the tour. And, and in that session, which was delivered uh, remotely by webinar, we just went through the main types of mental disorders, the main early warning signs, and we shared with the audience um, a, an approach, if you like, to be much more proactive in how we spot signs and then to have the confidence to know what to do in terms of signposting people to help. But we're never in the business of trying to create counsellors or mental health specialists out of people who are not properly trained, but we are keen to create that environment where people can be guided to help to signpost it to the appropriate professional help at the earliest stage because we know the early intervention is associated with two really important outcomes. One is better clinical outcomes, and the other is quicker, more cost-effective interventions. So getting people at an early stage is really important. 
So there's education as part of this pathway, research, which George has talked about, the clinical support. And as time goes on, I think what will happen is we'll layer on top of that different types of support and interventions based on what we're seeing. And as, as a healthcare professional working in, in golf or in any other sport, what practical tips do, do you have um, to help identify um, athletes at risk uh, and potentially support those athletes at risk? Well, the first thing is for people just to be aware how common mental health problems are. And most of us at some point in our training or in terms of popular um, education that's around the place for general population would know that one in four, 25% of the population, will be affected by a mental health problem at some point in their lifetime. So the first thing people need to recognise is that this is common. So put to, to one side any of the stigma or the concerns you've got about mental health and just be aware this is touching upon us either directly or indirectly very very closely once we've got that in people's minds we then encourage them to follow a very simple approach which is to spot signs approach that person with care and then signpost them to help we use the acronym sas spot signs approach with care and then signpost that person to help so knowing that changes in behavior changes in communication style irritability social withdrawal kind of out of character behaviors might be an indicator that something's going on and recognizing that we wouldn't necessarily jump in there the first time we see this but if this is going on over a period of seven days or 14 days where it's more of a consistent change this should alert us to the fact that someone might not just be being difficult but they might actually have an underlying mental health problem and in that case what should you do well that's where the kind of approach with care comes into it we need people to understand that you can have the confidence to speak to someone, even if this isn't something that you're an expert in, but it's okay to ask how people are. And it's okay to, if they've said, yeah, I'm fine in a dismissive way, it's okay to recognize that you can go back and ask them again or ask them in another way, or maybe ask someone else who knows them whether they've noticed any concerns. And through an approach of just supportive inquiry, open-ended questions, just trying to find out how someone has determined whether they recognize they've got some difficulties. And if they do, then signpost them to help. It really is as simple as that. And it's, it's, well, it's really important to say this is the sort of stuff that we would tend to do as human beings anyway. This doesn't require any particular interest or expertise. We would do this in our families, with our friends. So we should be doing it with our colleagues at work and anyone else that we come into contact with. And are there any, I mean, would there be any specific screening tools that you might use as a mental health professional uh, to help identify those athletes? Yes, screening... Screening is always very difficult in terms of how, how effective and reliable are the measures that we're using. But in our clinic, um, we use the GAD-7 and the PHQ-9, which are commonly used uh, tools in primary care. And they just give us a snapshot of someone's depressive and anxiety symptoms, if for no other reason than it can be helpful to see what the difference is between the start and the finish of a treatment plan to look at the impact of the intervention itself. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that any are particularly better than others. Um, some people like to use the GHQ. There are some more specific ones. The Kessler series, Kessler 10 would be another example. Um, for us, it's, it's not essential, but we do find that it's a helpful way if you're in a consultation with someone who's maybe not that willing to be there or a bit reluctant to be as open as they could be to flag up some of the things that they've self-reported as being significant for them. And you can ask them specific questions around that. So to move on to to think about a more specific case. Um, if you were to have someone referred, say a 45 year old golfer with some low mood, having maybe lost interest in golf, uh, 
feeling a bit hopeless with some low energy, maybe suffering from a bit of depression. How would you go about clinically assessing them and and what management options might you consider going forwards? The the clinical assessment by a psychiatrist is always fairly standard. It's about a face-to-face interview. At the moment, we might not be doing that in each other's company. It might be done remotely and that's fine you lose a little bit of the quality of the sort of non-verbal communication but not to a degree that it would impair the effectiveness of the assessment and we'd be taking a very clear history around the symptoms you've just talked about how long has that person's mood been low has it been consistently low for a diagnosis of depression as you know well we're looking for mood to be pervasively low for a minimum of 14 days and then what are the associated cognitive or thinking symptoms with that Are they feeling guilty, hopeless, helpless, worthless? Have they had thoughts that life isn't worth living or worse? And then what are the physiological or biological concomitants of a depressive disorder? So how is their sleep? How is their appetite? How is their concentration? What are their energy levels like? How does that translate into their ability to function? Are they more socially withdrawn than they would have been before? So you go through a kind of mental in-your-head checklist without it being too formulaic, kind of in an exploratory way. And then you'd also be very interested to know whether there's a family history, whether this person has a past history. Are there any comorbid conditions that might be in in here? Because for a lot of people struggling with their mental health, alcohol consumption goes up. Some younger players that we come across maybe are more likely to use recreational drugs and alcohol because they see them as being a healthier alternative. But are they self-medicating and compounding the problem? Um, And it's also important for us to look at any past history of trauma, so developmentally, have there been difficulties as individuals have along the way? Because that can kind of underlie or shape the expression of some of these depressive symptoms. And it's interesting, you, you asked me about a 45-year-old um, golfer because I saw someone who fits that bill almost perfectly three or four years ago. And it was getting towards the end of the season. And, of course, a number of pressures that I'd referred to earlier for golfers had built up for this person. Their form wasn't great. They were not making cuts. Uh, they were looking like they were going to lose their tour card. and The distinction that I make in terms of a decision around whether to prescribe or not prescribe is the level of functional impairment. And it was very clear to me that this was someone who normally would be quite outgoing and socially kind of engaged with friends. And he had pulled away from that. Of course, that's the removal of a very protective factor for people who've got depressive symptoms. You want people to be more connected and engaged. He hadn't been following his training regimes and he'd become very, very, very anxious about the financial implications of not retaining his tour card. Um, and all of that taken together for me made this a very clear case of a situation where not only did this individual need to do some work with one of our psychologists on a one-to-one basis to look at their thinking style, their coping strategies, do some cognitive behavioral related work, but he clearly needed an antidepressant. And so after a discussion to explain the potential beneficial and adverse effects of an antidepressant and choosing one that worked for him, in his case, insomnia was a problem. And I quite like an antidepressant called agomelatine because it has far less side effects than you see from the SSRIs and tends to be good for people with, you know, that shift in their um, day, wake, day, night, wake cycle. Um, I started him on that. And in fact, he did, he did brilliantly well. He, within a few weeks, his performance had picked up. He, I think, came first or second in a tournament and secured his tour card immediately. And all of these cases are such kind of wonderful outcomes. But what I would encourage all sports and exercise physicians to do is to be in no way shy about thinking about prescribing for patients, for athletes who've got depression at that level. Because, as I said before, early intervention will drive better outcomes. And that's really what we're after. So don't be don't be hesitant.
Thanks very much. That's really helpful. Um, uh, Chris, coming to the end now, um, I just wanted to ask you about if there are any useful mental health resources that you think might be helpful for the BGSM community to know about that they could maybe suggest to their patients or even use themselves to help uh, manage mental health at the moment. There are some great um, self-help uh, kits out there. If you look at um, websites by people like Sane, Calm, the campaign against living miserably. Um, uh, no, I'm missing one of the uh, mind, of course. Um, with, within their kind of public access areas, there's lots of good top tips on you know how to look after ourselves. I personally quite like the NIMH, the National Institute for Mental Health website. Um, it's an American one which really has fantastic information about conditions, about research, about how to assess properly and how to treat those conditions. So for me, that's a, a good kind of reference guide. And I think the most important thing that we can do, which doesn't even involve going online to look for resources, is look at the resources we've got around us. You know, what expertise can we draw upon from family, friends, professional colleagues to kind of learn from each other? We're doing a little bit of work at the moment with the Rugby Players Association. Of course, like a lot of sports people, they're all effectively furloughed. And we're trying to create communities within those athletes of people who can share tips for themselves. Rather than having to go to a professional, can you kind of generate a degree of kind of autonomy and self-directed self-help? Uh, because if you can, that, that becomes such a powerful kind of movement for, for good. If you look at um, addictions, for example, the 12-step model, Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not a medical approach, but so many thousands of people down the years would swear by that as being the intervention that has led to them achieving sobriety and recovering and living a fulfilled life. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. On behalf of the whole BGSM community, I'd like to thank you both for coming and speaking to me today. Um, and thank you all for listening. I hope you're all able to have a physically active day. <laughs>